This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts. Welcome to the Carbon Connection Podcast. It's not too late to change the conversation about climate change from doom and gloom to a conversation about possibility. This podcast is a curated selection of episodes that we just had to share with you. The Carbon Connection is about the many dimensions of climate change and the conversations people are having across the globe. It's about hope, community, advocacy, science, and changing our future. Hi, I'm Bridget. I like this episode, Principles of Climate and Health, with Dr. Jeffrey Shaman, because it provides an introduction on the relationship between climate change and health. I also like the simple way that Dr. Shaman explains the concepts. It's factual and to the point. This is a good episode for people who don't know a lot about climate change yet either. They discuss the difference between climate and weather and very succinctly explain why you should even care. Climate change is viewed differently when you take the connection from the storms and wild weather that may not feel so relevant to something that directly impacts everyone's health, not just me and my family. It also underlines the need of shared common facts and information in order to take action. As well, it highlights how important it is that ordinary people take action even if they're not 100% perfect. How does climate change affect health? And what can medical professionals do about it? Those are the very questions that we hope to answer here on Code Green, the Climate Smart Health Professional. I'm Natasha Sood, your host for today's episode. We're honored to have with us today Dr. Jeffrey Shaman, the director of the Climate and Health Program at Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. He is a prominent researcher in climate, atmospheric science, and infectious disease. I'm especially excited to have Dr. Shaman on the show because he was one of my professors when I was an MPH student at Columbia. Welcome, Dr. Shaman. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Natasha. It's great to be here. So, Dr. Shaman, a concept you emphasized in my first class with you was the difference between weather and climate. And as I talk to more and more people, I realize how important that distinction is when discussing climate change. Could you explain the difference between weather and climate for us? Sure. So weather is the actual conditions you have in the here and now. So wherever you're sitting, there's a temperature, there's a humidity, there's a wind speed, it may be raining, it may not be. Those conditions are the weather. And that weather varies, and it varies through time and space. Go from place to place, it's not the same conditions, you stay in the same place, and through time, the weather changes. The climate is really the statistics of the weather. And one example of that is what's the typical conditions or the average conditions. So what is the average temperature in the month of November in a particular location? And what has that been experienced over the last 30 years? 
But it's more than just those averages. It can also tell you how often are you expecting a flood? How often would a hurricane hit? What are the typical highs that you see in a year? Whether or not a heat wave is an extreme event or not can be a bit of judged versus climate. So climate is the statistics. It tells you what the conditions are. Right. So the term climate change refers to global warming and the side effects of the warming, like the melting glaciers, the heavier rainstorms, or the more frequent droughts. So to start, Dr. Shaman, can you explain the mechanisms of global warming? So when we talk about climate change or global warming specifically, we're talking about a human-induced disruption of the system that we've come to rely upon. Now, this falls out from physical principles, and it has to do with human activities. It has to do with the burning of fossil fuels and the additions of trace gases such as carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, and ozone into the atmosphere, which have radiative properties that disrupt the energy balance between the Earth and space. And in doing so, it's warming the planet. That warmth of the planet then has these attendant effects that are associated with disruptions of the hydrologic cycle and other changes that are problematic that are causing that system we rely upon to shift and to move. And so has the planet ever experienced this kind of drastic shift in its temperature before? We haven't seen a change that's taken place as quickly as what we've seen over the last 100, 150 years. We're seeing a real marked departure and movement of temperatures at a rate that we haven't witnessed in what's called the paleo record. Why is it so important to maintain climate stability and a stable global temperature? Our societies have developed in a point in time where it's really important that we reliably know what temperatures are going to be as we move from month to month and season to season, and how precipitation and other hydrologic conditions are going to change as we move from month to month and season to season. And when that is disrupted, it disrupts our water security, our food security, our ability to sustain our livelihoods and keep people safe and healthy. And it's that movement, it's that destabilization that's really problematic with climate change. I think it's important to recognize that there's really almost no field out there or enterprise that doesn't really want predictability, right? We don't handle disruption well. Over the past two years, we've seen an increase in reporting on climate change. Why is climate change now more prevalent in media and literature than it was just a few decades ago? Why has it taken this long to get this level of national and global attention? You know, the, the, the real hard part about it is that climate change is a somewhat slow process. And it's hard to specifically point at something and say, well, that's climate change. We certainly had wildfires before we knew about climate change. Those go back a long ways. We certainly had landfalling hurricanes and tropical cyclones. Um, but what we're seeing now is an intensification and an increase in the frequency of these events. And that does seem to be a product of climate change. It's spilling out certain ingredients that are, are uh, going to make it so that we are actually going to have more of those types of events. Now that we have this framework to understand climate change, I want to start connecting it to human health. I really liked how in our class you discussed the direct and the indirect impacts of climate change and health. Can you discuss these impacts here? The first are direct impacts, and those may have to do with things that come directly from changes in temperature or hydrology. And yes, it could be an increase in, 
in drownings due to flooding, but that may be very minor. I'm thinking more along the lines of something like the increase in heat-related morbidity and mortality associated with hot weather days, heat waves that are becoming increasingly severe. There was a major heat wave, for instance, in 2003 over Western Europe that's estimated to have killed 70 to 80,000 people. These are very, very dangerous conditions where being outside is no longer really viable for human beings when you're at those kinds of conditions. People can go into extreme heat stress, including those who are very healthy. So that's sort of a direct effect. Okay. So what about the direct effects of maybe sea level rise? So we are certainly going to see a melting of the ice caps, the cryosphere, and alpine glaciers. We also see thermal expansion of the oceans, and this is leading to an increase in sea level and a flooding that's taking place in coastal regions. What is this going to do to populations as they get displaced? How is that going to impact where they're going and where they can actually set up anew if places such as Bangladesh are no longer habitable, or Miami, Florida is no longer habitable, or island nations in the Pacific where the Atoll Island averages between one and two feet above sea level right now? What happens when existentially when that island is no longer there and where are those stateless people going to go? All right. And could you give us some examples of the indirect impacts of climate change on health? Those might be things like fires, because the fire is not caused by climate change, but the conditions for allowing the fire to occur may actually be intensified. So you can have increased rains that are very heavy that green up an area such as California, Southern California, but then mostly dry, hot temperatures, hotter than normal now, that are really drying out that vegetation and making it the tinder to support the wildfires and allow them to grow and extent and make control of them much more difficult. You can think about changes in infectious disease distributions. You can think about allergens and how you're going to have higher pollen levels in longer pollen seasons and what that might mean for asthma events and other associated chronic respiratory conditions. I think those are sort of like the indirect effects because you can see that there's one additional link to it. Now, when we talk about climate change broadly, and especially when we talk about health, we really have to discuss its dimensions. So I want to take a moment to talk about the intersectionality of climate change. We believe that the fight for true climate justice cannot happen without tackling racial justice as well. So Dr. Shaman, can you introduce us to the relationship between climate change and race? I think it's not just climate change and race, but it's climate change and economic disparity as well, which unfortunately very often falls along racial lines. And those are very heavily institutionalized in many countries in the world. Um, the, the issue with climate change, like most things that disrupt uh, the way we do business, is it disproportionately affects the disadvantaged and those without the economic means and wherewithal to pick themselves up and move, to buffer themselves from the effects. Those who don't have the resources with which to find food from other areas, who can't actually pick up and move. This happens time and time again when there are disasters, that those who are vulnerable are those who are um, economically disadvantaged and in many instances oppressed. And we don't have to just see instances of genocide like the Rohingya, for instance, to see when this is happening and coming about. 
anytime there's some sort of stressor, and a climate change is a stressor and it's a disruptor, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be meted out on, along racial lines and along, along economic lines. Exactly. And, and I think the COVID-19 pandemic has, has really illustrated this effect. And we have to see this time and time again, as we've seen with COVID-19. We've seen how it's disproportionately affected communities of color in the U.S. And this is not solely a U.S. phenomenon. If you don't have access to health care, if you don't have the same levels of insurance, if you are more uh, in, in an area where you're associated with public transport and large families living in a limited housing stock as opposed to being able to spread out, you are at a disadvantage in the face of this virus. All right. And that are the lines that we have drawn in our society already and that bring about inequities that also get expressed along healthcare lines and health access and healthfulness lines. The same thing is going to happen with climate change and the same thing has happened with climate change. So you could even take an extreme example of, let's say, one of the island nations of the Pacific and say, well, if they had the resources, they could really pick themselves up and move a place or they could build up the island in some crazy way if they had unlimited resources. They do not. All right. And that is where the difficulty lies. People who are wealthier can pick up and move away from the coast of Miami and find a new place to build a house and prosper. People who don't have the resources are not going to be able to and are going to really be dependent on the help of their fellow citizens. And whether that help comes or not is really questionable. So the better we can align ourselves and deal with these inequities as they align themselves along racial lines, and that's one of the most the strongest predictors of it, and it's so institutionalized, we have to address it through that lens. Um, the better we're going to be able to buffer people from the effects of climate change. And it doesn't mean dragging people down. It means bringing everybody up. That's what we would want to do. Mm-hmm. Right. So coming from a public health background to medical school has drastically changed the way that I approach medicine and my own learning. Uh, and I know that as physicians, we cannot fully treat a patient without understanding the root causes of their diseases. Uh, and in medical school, we spend a considerable amount of time discussing the social determinants of health, but we rarely discuss the environmental determinants of health. So Dr. Shaman, would you be able to walk us through what you consider environmental determinants of health? I mean, there's so many things that we need to think about. Where people live is so important. And again, this gets drawn along racial lines and economic lines that people who are poor and communities of color are often put in neighborhoods where they're exposed to things in their environment that you don't get in wealthier neighborhoods, maybe just simply because they have the resources to find themselves in a place that's cleaner, that's less subject to water contamination, that's away from airports and roads where the air quality is better. Um, You know, it's not always the case. There are rural poor as well. We know that. Um, But that Location is a very important factor, certainly for thinking about it. Um, And then when you think about things along the lines of climate change, and this is where it gets into sort of this slow creep. Is it really something that's going to disproportionately affect certain communities? The answer is yes. When you think about a heat wave coming through a region, well, heat waves disproportionately affect 
urban areas because of urban heat island effects. They disproportionately affect people who may live in older building stock with poorer ventilation and who don't have air conditioning and can't afford it. So suddenly you have real social determinants being thrust into through this lens of a heat wave. And furthermore, you know, you can go take it even further and say, well, if you also look in poorer communities and very often communities of color, they may have higher rates of diabetes or higher rates of obesity uh, or higher rates of blood, uh, high blood pressure. And those two are going to put them at greater risk of effects due to uh, a heat wave, for instance, the same things that we see in COVID. Now, I can't say that all those things I just enumerated there are in fact true for every community. So I'm not trying to put everybody in a bucket. But those kinds of social determinants, I think you can see that they get layered on in many, many ways. Uh, it has to do with access. It has to do with resource. It has to do with pre-existing conditions that are more likely in certain communities versus others based on inequities in the distribution of the access to healthcare over the long term and exposures over the long term and ability to have the resources to feed yourself well and appropriately. You know, those things are are all just going to stack up. So the 2018 Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report predicted that we have 12 years before the impact of climate change on the planet and public health become irreversible. And that's now 10 years. So how long do we really have? They put a number on it, and it's really impossible for them to say that, you know, midnight, December 31st on, uh, you know, as we move into the new year on 2030, some cataclysm is going to happen. But what they are expressing with this is that there is an extreme urgency here. Climate change is not just where it is right now. If we were to stop all greenhouse gas production right now, the earth would still warm. The atmosphere would still increase in temperatures for a couple decades. The oceans for quite some time. There's what's called a thermal inertia. We haven't come into the new balance. And so much of what we've done already in our activity has yet to actually be manifest. So the urgency is that it's a growth process, that all the fossil fuel combustion we have done thus far has not fully manifest as a rises in rise, increase in temperature. That is really something that we'll see over time. So if we don't act now, or the longer we delay to act, the more warming we're baking into the system, the more disruption we're putting into the system. And unfortunately, it's very similar to the pandemic. If you wait while it's in a growth phase, it's going to overwhelm you. The things that we do today are not going to stop an increase of cases for the next 7, 10 days. That's a much shorter timescale than what you're talking about with climate change. But the aim here is to do something proactive. Unfortunately, it's very difficult to get society to behave proactively when it requires major investments, even in the face of an oncoming freight train, as it were. As we all know, we just had a big election in November 2020. What does the new presidential administration need to do to take meaningful action on climate? Oh, yeah. Well, firstly, we have to get the science back into it. Um, There has been a continued devaluation of science, and it's gotten extreme now. And it's not just climate change, you know, the... um, the removal of EPA regulations in many instances, things related to clean air and clean water. These are things that, you know, it's very hard one to build it up. It's very easy to tear things down. The other problem, though, is is 
I think almost more existential, which is that we, we don't have a shared set of facts. We are so divided right now as a nation. It's, it's a very delicate balance that we have to learn how to disagree civilly and without shouting and to actually at least have a shared set of facts. Absolutely. So with all of this being said, why is it so important for health professionals specifically to be involved in addressing climate change? Oh, there are many, many reasons. Well, firstly, climate change has a health impact. You know, the surveys they've done, ED doctors are already saying they are seeing the health impacts of climate change on a regular basis. So we're already seeing the problems associated with climate change. Even if they're these insidious, hard to observe stressors, people are beginning to perceive them and they know there's a problem there. So we need to, to recognize that and understand that problem's there so that we can keep people healthier. Now, not to rag on clinicians, but clinical work is reactive, right? It's something that's there to help people when they're in need. So how do we get to a more proactive space? And that's where physicians can also be very, very helpful because they can talk and work with people to actually meet their overall health needs. I like to think of it, there's a really simple example from the American Lung Institute where they recommend and rank cities for people who have things like COPD, right? And you look at that and it's a very simple assessment of where you should think about living if you have a chronic respiratory syndrome, right? Where are places that are more to your advantage because of access to healthcare uh, and as well as pollution levels and temperature levels? So you pull those together and you think of where should people be living and can their physicians talk to them and apprise them of, the resources that are available to them, and where location may be better suited for their health. Basically, this isn't just a public health issue. It needs to be brought into the clinical sphere. If clinical practice, if medical practice, if public health practice recognize more broadly the health impacts of climate change and how this is central to keeping our populations and our, our individuals and our families safe, there's a recognition of what climate change means. And it elevates the seriousness of the issue. And it brings the stature of the medical establishment behind the problems associated with climate change and the need to address them proactively. So there's that additional message there. I mean, people will talk about the idea that people vote based on their pocketbook and the health of their families, right? And obviously the health of their families is that clinical impact that we see from climate change. So if we can get that recognition in medical establishment, that's going to ultimately be communicated to the patients and that's going to lodge in their psyche and they're going to come to recognize that there are some problems we have to deal with here and we need to invest in the solutions so that we can minimize those problems and make it a more just and equitable planet for everyone. Absolutely. And there's this survey by Eco America that was put out in 2018 where they found that 67% of Americans trusted health professionals for information on climate change. Yet, less than 19% had actually heard about climate change from their providers. And so, like you said, I think that we have this incredible platform to be able to make an impact on this issue. So just stepping back here, the climate crisis is very overwhelming. And as we've seen with the COVID-19 pandemic, there is an incredible amount of crisis fatigue and grief. And in thinking about the climate crisis, my friends, my colleagues and I have, we've all shared 
how we've experienced some level of grief surrounding our personal lives, our futures, um, the health of our loved ones and our patients, and then, of course, grief for our planet. How do you suggest we propel these feelings into meaningful action? That's a great question, and it's a very complex question as well. I mean, you really were alluding to in the first portion of it some of the mental health aspects of it. And it, it can be very crushing to look at the issue of climate change because it is in some ways an existential threat. And it's hard to say that in some ways without sounding overblown, but the reality is people are going to suffer from this and some will lose their lives because of it. And they already are. And so the question is, how do you find that in the ability to get up and address the problems when there still is so much disagreement and there's so much misinformation out there and keep your optimism, which I hope we have. Hopelessness is not the place where we want people to wind up because of this. And there have to be things that you understand that you can do and that you have to find spaces for yourself not to be overwhelmed by this threat, as it were, because then you're not going to be able to function. So what are some of the things you can do? Well, there's tons that you can do locally. There's tons that you can do for yourself. You know, it sounds trite, but walk more, drive less. When you get a car, buy a fuel efficient car. Uh, think about public transportation. Think about buying local rather than global stuff. So you're not importing things all over the place. Think about reducing your air travel. And you can say, well, you know, what is all my little bit going to do for it? Well, that's important in and of itself. Make this a political issue. Demand that this be something that people reckon with, that this is a threat that we have to deal with. Take it from being the 20th priority issue to the third priority issue in the United States, right? Make it something where we understand that we have to get into these international courts and put down the barriers that we impose. Understand that, you know, when we do change things, when you do move away from a fossil fuel-based energy system, there is some pain and cost associated with it. But the dividend that comes afterwards in almost all regulatory frameworks that we've ever observed is even better. We need to kick the carbon habit, but we need to invest ourselves in it personally and politically to make this happen. So it sounds like there are a lot of actions that individuals can take to make a difference. And I know that sometimes it's hard to see how our individual actions contribute to change, but we all need to remember that everyone doesn't have to live a perfectly green and eco-friendly lifestyle. We all just need to do something even if it feels small, if we want to see real change in our planet, we all need to do our part. And at the same time, we recognize that industry and corporations have a huge role to play in mitigating climate change. What kind of action do we need to see taken by global industries? Well, you know, there needs to be investment and redirection, but this is what happens in many industries, they have a lifespan and they disappear. We don't make horse and buggy cart, you know, carts the same way we did before. Buggies, that's what I'm trying to say. Um, and we have to understand that industries move on. And one of the largest growing sectors in the U.S. economy is on renewables. And you're not going to stop that growth because we have a capitalist system. It's how we go about and do our things. And there's economic opportunity that's finally really gaining stride. We need public support of this. We need regulatory support of this. We need incentivization 
so that we can get that going even faster. That's the desperation, if you will, that is put out there and imparted by the IPCC's declaration. We got to get this together by 2030. We need to make those strides now because it's got to be proactive. It can't be reactive. Dr. Shaman, this has been a very powerful interview. Thank you. We are incredibly grateful to have you on the show, and I'm so excited for our listeners to hear from you. There's a lot for us to think about from what we've discussed today. Um, so thank you again. Yeah, be well. This podcast is co-hosted and produced by Natasha Sood and Sarah Shu. Thank you so much to Dr. Shaman for joining us today. Today's episode was sound edited by Liana Hagas, and our social media is managed by Naomi Nesmith. This podcast series could not have been possible without the support from medical students for a sustainable future. We also want to acknowledge the indigenous lands from which we are recording. I'm recording from Hershey, Pennsylvania, which sits on the traditional homeland of the Susquehanna tribe. Dr. Shaman is speaking to us from New York City, which sits on the traditional homelands of the Wappinger and Munsee Lenape. Thank you again for tuning in to Code Green, the climate smart health professional. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Carbon Connection, a rebroadcast of the Code Green podcast, a show for climate smart health professionals. We'd like to thank Natasha Sud, co-host of Code Green, for allowing us to share this episode with you. Today's episode was produced by Tanya Marion, alongside Aveline Morris, Barbara Orsi, and Catherine Palmer. Special thanks to Bridget Kutzel for sharing this episode with us. Our editor is Tanya Marion, and our founding producer is Jennifer Meyer-Schwa. To learn more about the relationship between health and climate change, go to thecarbonalmanac.org slash footnotes and enter the word health into the search field. To listen to other shows in the network, visit thecarbonalmanac.org slash podcast.